Hi guys, this is uh, Simon Pavey. I'm here with uh, Andy Jukes, the quick-witted announcer on uh, Ride and Talk, our BMW's podcast. Excited to be here, Andy. Greetings all. Great to have you back. When I think of GS, I think of Simon Pavey. The likeable Australian has inspired thousands of new riders, young and old, to take their first adventure motorcycling steps at his off-road school in Wales. It was he that Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman turned to when needing specialist skills training for their Long Way Round project back in 2003. He's played a huge part in building up a big GS community and has also shared his love of motorcycle sport by competing in numerous rallies, including 10 Dakars, many of which have been on BMW race bikes he's built. He's also hosted several GS challenges and GS trophy qualifying events. In short, he lives and breathes GS. He also gave me plenty of advice and, more importantly, the confidence to plan my own big GS motorcycling adventure. He's been around these bikes as long as I have, so I thought it was about time he shared a few of his stories. And you're going to love them. Hello there, Simon. Welcome to Ride and Talk. Great to have you on the podcast. This is going to make you feel old, but we've known each other since before the turn of the century, when the <laughs> 1100 GS could still be bought new in dealers, and well before the F650 GS even existed. Yeah, amazing. Pretty amazing. Yeah, before the F650 GS it was, wasn't it? Yeah, it's a scary thought. But when I first met you in London in 1997, when I was a journalist for Bike Magazine, interviewing you for a story about your first ever Dakar rally preparations. And when the magazine was published, there was this picture of you wearing nothing but a rather dodgy pair of purple pants. Tell us the story about the purple pants, I. Pink and purple. Come on. <laughs> a little bit of both colours. Yeah, it was... Um... Hey, you know, I tried to get to the start line of Dakar for quite a number of years, like I, I think a lot of people do when that dream when that dream strikes. And I came up with uh, I came up with a bit of a pitch to Bike Magazine, and of course that was all pre-internet, wasn't it? So back in those days, Bike was easily the biggest publication in the UK. I think they were selling like a hundred thousand a month, those kind of numbers. Anyway, unheard of for the magazine world now. And uh, I I went to. Dickie Fincher, who was the then editor, with this sort of idea of a series of features for the magazine. And Dickie being Dickie, as I know him very well now, uh, liked the idea but kind of took it a step too far and, and pitched the story as basically here's this bloke that wants to go and do the Dakar but has nothing, no idea, no clue, not even any clothes. And, yeah, so the opening picture was, yeah, as you described it, was uh, it was freezing cold that day as well, wasn't it? I'm just adding in. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you turned up down in uh, down in a dodgy estate in South London and uh, took some photos of me stood there in my Speedos. <laughs> the picture that launched a thousand ships, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and then, of course, several years later, at the turn of the century, our paths crossed again when I was invited to the launch of the BMW Off-Road Skills Programme in South Wales. And there you were, alongside uh, BMW Gulawar's factory team riders, John Deakin and Andrew Mayer, showing us this incredible 2,000 acres, I think it was at the time, of off-road paradise. So how did they find that place and how did you personally get on board with that project? Well, it was it was sort of something that came together through um, again back th back through Bike Magazine after I did you know, I did my first two Dakars um, with Bikes Help, and we we ran a couple of reader ride days uh, just just with that same message that we've sold for a long time now. But um, you know, getting some off road experience is great for your general motorcycling skills and a great way to sort of build your 
your road confidence and your skill set. So we, we ran yeah, a couple of days with the magazine uh, and it kind of quickly became apparent that there, there was a scope to do more, but it, it needed a manufacturer involved um, to make it really work. And um, through a sort of a knocking on some doors, but also some fortuitous situations, I, I actually went to the, the launch in Berlin. It was ju- just not a riding launch, but just a launch of the, the F650 GS. I, I went there for the magazine, but I was sat next to David Taylor, who was the then boss of BMW UK on the plane, and we was talking about this idea, and and it kind of grabbed him as well. You know, it was in the era when BMW was like looking at that: how do we change our image a bit? How do we stop being kind of the flat cap brigade? What what are we looking for? And they didn't really know exactly what they were looking for, but they knew they wanted to do something innovative and different. So it kind of grabbed David's attention. And around about the same time, John signed for the factory, and David knew John as well. We'd all been out trail riding a few times because David was a bit of a dirt bike guy himself, and uh, and so the three of us just ended up sort of sat in the room together. and And I, I knew John through racing and stuff, but neither of us were like like best mates, if that makes sense. But we were just a really good fit because John, you know, he had the the official factory connection. Um, he was a charismatic guy he was super exciting and fun to be around but maybe a little bit loose with his sort of organization and planning so so David kind of liked the idea of us working together so he he kind of put us together really um, and that first one you know David just said like let's get a load of motorbikes get, get a load of journalists down there and and just do something and see where it goes and uh, and as you know, you were there right at the start. It worked right from the off. Um, we found this fantastic venue. John and I went and looked at five or six different venues all around the UK. Um, but many times when you're looking, you know, once you start looking for a decent amount of land, especially in the UK, you end up with a, a beautiful place, but wet grass, not the greatest environment for teaching. And then we we came across this, this land actually through... Um, so it was a great little story, actually. There was a guy working at BMW at the time, and BMW always used to go. There was like a blue light fair, trade fair, for police, ambulance, fire service every year. BMW always present there to sell the story of GSs and RTs being great service vehicles. But one of the guys that worked for BMWs was an avid tank driver. <laughs> <laughs> you get all sorts, don't yeah. you? And, um and he got talking to this guy at the fair about somewhere to drive his tanks. <laughs> and then he sort of came over and said to John and I, hey, this guy's been talking to me about this place to drive tanks. I think you need to come and look at it with me. And and so we did. And we, yeah, as soon as we saw it, we knew it was the place. And as, as you now know, I've, you know, been teaching and training people to ride uh, GSs for 20 years. And we've done training courses all around the world in Australia, in Thailand, in Canada, and um you know, uh, lots of fantastic places, but as a training venue, you literally can't beat the venue we've got here. It's so fantastic. You know, it's every everything you could want for a, an adventure motorcycle. Um, so, yeah, it was really great, great place to start, and it's been a, a great bit of the story. So thank you, Howard, uh, Howard Goodolphin, for your uh, epic tank-driving uh, venue that you found. I don't think a tank's ever been around there, mind you. <laughs> 
I, can't, I, I should have known it was Howard. <laughs> Absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, no, and I can vouch for the uh, the venue and, and the and the surface and and what it offers as well. Of course, sadly, we lost John Deacon in two thousand and one. I think it was racing in Syria at the Masters Rally, and with the off road school very much in its infancy at that time, it must have been quite a daunting task for you to pick up all the pieces and carry on. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a you know it was a massive blow, like personally as well. Obviously, in that that kind of year and a half that we worked together, and you know went did a bunch of rallies together, and I and I was with John uh, on the master rally when when John passed, and yeah, it was um it was a definitely a, a kind of tough thing to go through for sure. Yeah, and and you know we sort of we put a in that era we were just running schools sort of two demands so we'd run a few schools and then we sort of said like we wanted we both wanted to go and do this race so kind of didn't run any schools for six weeks so that we could jump in his van and go off down to the south france and and have this great adventure together and and obviously john didn't come back from that adventure and um yeah it was it was a really difficult time i think for well for a lot of people obviously you know it's tough one for for his wife Tracy of course and his brother Rob and his dad and it was um yeah it was a really really hard thing to go through and you know it's not something I think anyone in motorsport wants to go through but it is unfortunately you know it is part of the game that we play um yeah and yeah it's crazy to think that uh you know it's 19 years ago that uh, that, that happened but we still definitely here we still definitely think and talk about John I was telling the guys some stories about him the other night, actually. Um, yeah, because he, I mean, you knew him as well. He was a, he was one of those guys in our sport that was such a character as well. You know, he was always, he was always like full gas, everything he did. And, you know, if you went, if you went to the bar with John in the evenings and he was a good guy to go with the bar with, but he, he was that kind of bloke. And this just tells he, how his life always was that, there would be carnage in the bar and he would have caused all of it, but he'd just be sat in the corner with a gin and tonic in his hand looking totally innocent. But he was so good at just dragging other people into adventures and, and dramas all the time. It, you know, that, that's, that was the best part about him, really, and the best part of hanging out with him. Yeah, yeah. And of course, everyone's got their John Deacon story, haven't they? I mean, my particular one was just rocking up down to Cornwall, actually, for a magazine shoot with him. And, and he was on a, actually an R850 GS at the time, which uh, he said was a great bike. But I can remember taking a look at him and, and noticing that he'd put on a few pounds. I said, John, are you, are you, you know, you, how's your training going? Because you look like you've had a few pies over the winter. And I can just remember he just said, that's all right, Andy, I'm bike fit. I can ride a bike all day without getting tired. Don't you worry about my weight, boy. All day without getting tired. <laughs> and it was true, wasn't it? He could uh, get around that. It, it was kind of a little bit the Toby Price of that era, you know, he, he just, he kind of didn't care. He just did everything full gas and didn't worry about the detail. Yeah. Top man. And of course, here you are 19 years later, still inspiring GS riders to take their first steps off road and helping those who keep coming back for more continue to improve their skills. So any idea how many riders you've had through the school to date? I honestly don't know, but you know, we're, we're a thousand a year or, you know, a little bit more these days actually probably i think 1300 last year <laughs> not so much this year um yeah so it's you know it's 
10,000 people or something like that that have done the school since we started it, which is amazing, you know, and, and that is the nicest part about it for sure is when you, you know, when you then follow people's stories a little bit after they've done a, a school or two and they do go off traveling and send their pictures back from all around the world and, you know, great messages of, of how their journey started. And yeah, that's, that's what it's all about. No question about it. You know, it was always a passion of mine, even before we started the BM school, you know, as you know, when you first met me, I was working with young people in South London and uh, always kind of been inspired to, to share my love of the sport, really. Um, and that, that's still 100% is the, the motivation to keep doing it. You know, you stood up on a Welsh mountain in the, in, in the gale force pouring rain, <laughs> staring into, into, the, into the wind like you've got to, you've got to really want to share that, that love of it, really, the love of the outdoors and the love of adventure and 100%. That's still the passion. Yeah, and I can remember the first time I met you and you were looking after these troubled teenagers um, and the carrot on the stick for them was if they played ball all day and learned those skills, they could go out and ro- ride motorbikes, couldn't they? And I think you you must have saved a lot of kids through doing that project. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, you know, I think all those kind of projects, it doesn't really matter what the what the sport or what the the subject matter is, you know, when people are going through those teenage years, especially in areas like that where there's where we were working, where maybe the family family unit isn't so strong, it doesn't really matter what the passion is, but it's just like it imbibing some passion um, in something, and whether that's football or riding motorbikes or it, it doesn't matter. It's you know, it's about having something that grabs hold of you and something that grabs your attention and. Motorbikes can do that, can't you? We all know that, that once the motorcycling thing gets in you, it, it's something that grabs you and it grabs you for life, you know. And we, we see that here now when you get people that come through the school and they're 19 years old, it can grab them, or they can be 70 years old and they've only just started motorcycling. But once they're grabbed, they're grabbed, you know, and, and it's a passion that stays with you. <laughs> Ironically, that can work as well for a teenager as it can for a pensioner, and we've seen that loads. You know, we see it a lot more and more now where people are, just starting their motorcycling journey into their 60s and 70s and and they get that same that same uh you know that same grab that we've uh, we've fortunately had all our lives and of course you mentioned earlier about the opportunities that doing these courses provides and the progressions i mean i can personally vouch that it does open a, a whole world of opportunities for gs owners or, or potential owners even but how often do you hear from a former pupil who's taken those acquired skills and found the confidence like you say maybe to start racing or do a big trip for example all the time like week in week out i literally opened a card in the post this morning from a from a couple yeah um yeah, it's it's like that's that's the most fantastic part of it for sure. You know, people just start a journey. I mean, we, we ironically, uh, you know, one of our instructors always makes a little bit of a joke at it at the sometimes even at the signing on on the morning of day one, but definitely by the presentation where he explains that off road skills is going to be um, bad for your wealth because now that you're kind of in the family, you're you're gonna you're gonna go home and you're gonna buy a new motorbike on the way home and you're gonna start looking at all these trips and holidays and like you say some people even then get the bug for racing and um and and so yeah it's a it's a dangerous journey to start don't don't start it unless you're prepared to uh, go in deep and and it's you know it's the same people are honestly people are going home every weekend and buying bikes on their way home from the two days here which is like for someone like myself that's like I said passionate about spreading that. Uh, 
that enjoyment that I've had out of motorcycling over the years, it's um, like that's, that's just a joyous thing to be part of. Yeah. I'm always amazed at how many riders still talk about long way around and you and, and Charlie as being the inspiration for them wanting to buy a GS or be a part of the BMW motorrad community because you were the guy who trained you and Charlie in the first place for that series. What was it? Way back in 2003, something like yeah, that. So yeah, yeah. Did you ever imagine the effect of their trip on so many people and how much it really crossed <laughs> over into the mainstream? No, not not at all. To the to the point where you know we were a little bit um like the same when they came down here to do some training the first time, and they wanted this like one to one bespoke training. We were like, well, if you want that, you, you're going to have to pay, you know, because we didn't think we didn't see it as like a this amazing marketing thing that it's become for the motorcycling world. We were like, we we're like, no, you know, that's how we earn our living is out te- teaching people, so you can pay and you can pay full whack. <laughs> um. Which is kind of, yeah, quite ironic because, you know, in hindsight, of course. But, you know, they didn't know either at the time. You know, when they when they came down the first time, they were just two guys that, um, you know, wanted to go off on an adventure motorcycling holiday. They were right at the beginning of that journey like everybody else is. And they didn't have any uh, – Ewan and Charlie themselves didn't have any dream or aspiration to turn it into this, you know, this epic thing that it's become. Uh, I mean, that definitely came from – Russ and David, the two guys that jumped on board and sort of said, "We should, if you guys are going to do this, we should make a film of it. Um, but I don't think anybody sort of, you know, set out for it to be this massive thing. I mean, those first couple of issues on, I think they were on Sky One back in the day. And, you know, the first couple of issues, there was only 20 people watched it. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and it sort of slowly gained this momentum um, to the point where, yeah, it um, became a, a huge thing for sure but yeah it was um yeah it was pretty mad yeah and, and in fact the very first time they came down here i just got back from um i think no i think i was on dakar and gary taylor one of our other instructors took them out just to, for the day just to sort of sample the bikes and then they came back after they decided to go on bms after that day um and that's the same thing. You see, one day riding a GS around Walters Arena and they were hooked. <laughs> and the rest is history. Absolutely. And the rest is history, yeah. Yeah, and then, yeah, yeah. And then you, you even became a bit of a leading performer yourself when I think your original role as Waterboy for Charlie Borman in that Race to Dakar project, it, that took a massive turn because he crashed and injured himself, didn't he? And then you suddenly find yourself as the main man in that series. I guess you probably should explain what a Waterboy is first before telling us about that. Yeah, well, I, I guess kind of even before that, really, the role the role was supposed to be like trainer, really. Um, so they came with this idea to for Charlie to do Dakar. Um and, you know, I think like I've learned now, like a lot of those kind of projects, they don't come together very quickly. So between when we first spoke about it and everything actually got signed off, a lot of time was lost. So by the time we actually started training, uh, we only had, I think, maybe seven months to go from someone who was a hobby rider to someone that could take part in the world's biggest race. So it, it was always going to be a, you know, a tough call. And I, I think, you know, if it had been a TV thing that had a year and seven months, I think the outcome could have been very different. And we put, you know, we put a lot of time in during that seven months, but it was never going to be enough for someone. You know, Charlie hadn't done any race at that point in time. Yeah, it was such a such a big call. Um, yeah, so the goal was to spend some time, 
you know working on Charlie's riding and and he had a he had someone else with to help with the fitness and stuff like that but as I say just not enough time and you know to get to that level of experience and fitness in seven months you needed to kind of turn it into that was all he was going to do uh it wasn't enough and then yeah then on the race uh, so that this sort of idea of Waterboy in Dakar is is someone that's there to kind of help when things go things go wrong um but you know i as i explained to them many times in the lead up and you know people don't understand it's all well and good having a water boy but that that's you, you know that race is so complicated and so difficult that you've still got to be the person on the bike turning the throttle and making all the decisions during each day and no amount of other riders or other people around you can take that away once you go off the start ramp you know off the start ramp is on your own and okay maybe if there's a mechanical thing that he hadn't come across before and I was in the right place at the right time, I could have helped. But, you know, the chances of it going down like that are, are actually pretty slim. So really the main role with the three of us, myself and Matt, um, Matt Hall as well, once the race started, was to get as much footage as we could. Um, and, and again, you know, it's, it, it's a lot easier these days because cameras are everywhere now. But, but back then, you know, to have a helmet cam was like unheard of. So... You know these helmet cams and um, microphone setups that we had—they were all like prototype stuff and untried and untested. E- each unit was like four grand, and we destroyed ten of them. You know, because they just couldn't deal with the sand and the dust and the vibration. They weren't GoPros. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Things we take for granted now. It's yeah, exactly. You soon forget, so, don't you? And and so yeah, trying to sort of get footage and do the race. That's why it needed three of us gathering as much as we could to try and have something to attempt to tell the story of that race afterwards. And I mean, I mean, it's definitely something that I'm kind of proud to have been involved with because I think, and you know, at up until that time, no one had really been able to tell the story of that race very well because it was very difficult to tell that story as a privateer of what it was actually like to be inside it and how complicated it was, you know, all the elements of the bivouac and the aeroplanes and the motorbikes and the trucks and the the whole Mad Max chaos of that of that race. And, it, you know, there's a few people that have done great jobs now since then, but definitely up till that time, I don't think anyone else had even come close. So, yeah, it was, you know, it was something that was fantastic to have that chance to be involved with and, yeah, it was, it was super exciting. And it was, you know, for, for all, the, all that um, we didn't have enough time, we had a lot of fun in the training and prep, which I think anyone that races will tell you that. that a, lot, a lot of the time the racing is not the fun part of going racing. The fun part of going racing is all the time you put into practicing, training, preparing, you know, that there, there when you have a lot of fun really. Yeah, it's just living the whole thing, isn't it? I think that yeah. um, I think that series is still around. Is it on Netflix or Prime? I'm sure it popped up recently. Uh, yeah, I think on Amazon. Yeah, yeah, I think it's yeah. on Amazon. Yeah, I say yeah. if anyone's not seen it, just go and search it up because it is it's a fantastic story. It is a, a wonderful story. But of course, before then and since then, there've been other other Dakar rallies, haven't there, in Africa and South America? So, how many have you done now in total? Yeah, ten. <laughs> ten. Goodness yeah. me. <laughs> sucker for punishment yeah um yeah i keep telling people i'm over it now though so we'll see but uh yeah so very again just like super feel super fortunate to have had that that racing career really you know i raced dakar in 
Africa six times and four times in South America. Um, on I think I did seven of them on BMWs or BMW Husqvarna's. So. Yeah, I mean, you built several rally bikes. We spoke about F650 GS right in the beginning, didn't we? So you built several bikes based on that platform and I think the G450X, of course. Which of them was your favourite rally bike, would you say? Um, I think I, I kind of got two, really, for different reasons. One one is the, the G650X Challenge, or Cross Challenge. Um, that, that was awesome. Like, again, because we, you know, it was one of the things that was like the plus and minus of Dakar in that era as well is that it wasn't really an off-the-shelf product like there is now to kind of walk into a dealer and buy a bike that can potentially put you on the podium so you were kind of either a factory rider or you you were really a privateer and you were building the bike you know and that that was always horrendous and hard work because it was 200 hours in a workshop in the year leading up to it when you so that you know people always say about like fitness training or whatever but that you know you were always trying to find this balance between finding the money, fitness, and prepping a bike. And the bike took a lot of time. And so, yeah, we, we prepped uh, F650GS road bike <laughs> and turned it into something that could cross the deserts. And, and it was hard work, that bike, in all honesty. It was a very, very difficult bike to ride. And then the cross challenge came along, and it was a, a big difference. It was a little bit easier to convert. It was much more based on a trail bike rather than a road bike. Um and it, it was kind of a little bit underpowered in the era, but the handling and the suspension and the, the chassis were actually really good. And also, I, I've got a real soft spot. I've still got that bike, and I've got a real soft spot for it because uh, I did another race called the Trans-Oriental Rally, which was the most fantastic event I've ever done. It, it was started in St. Petersburg in Russia, and it finished at the Great Wall in China. Um, and it, it, you know, it was longer than Dakar and it was, it was really like an old school rally. They only ran it once. So it was a little bit chaotic, a little bit disorganized. You didn't quite know what was going on most of the time. You didn't quite know whether you were going to make the bivouac, whether there was going to be food, fuel, all that stuff. So it was like, it was a real, real good adventure as well. Um, so that bike I rode all, you know, all the way from St. Petersburg to Beijing. Um, and then, and then they, that was in 2008, and then as soon as I got back from that, uh, like I'm, I had in my mind, this is the last big race I'm probably going to do, and then they announced Dakar was going to South America, so I was like, first entry in. <laughs> 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 I had no, again, back to no money, nothing, but I had a bike, you know. So, th- so that bike then went to South America, did the first Dakar in South America, um, and then through off-road skills a couple of years ago, we, uh, as everyone's probably knows or is gathering i'm originally australian and um we decided to put together a, a customer ride all the way across australia as a as a sort of thing you know for customers that have already been through the school looking for that big adventure and you know to come to australia with me and sort of see the real australia go um so so we started this uh, um yeah this trip which went from cairns to broome so then I sent that bike out to Oz and, and rode it all the way across Australia as well. And it's actually still in Oz at the moment. Um, so it, it's kind of, you know, it's got quite a good history, that bike. It's been around most of the planet now, either racing or, or adventure riding. Um, and it's still got life in it. You know, the, the motor's fantastic. So, so it's a sort of um, adventure bike, trail bike, race bike crossover. Absolutely fantastic. I've got a real soft spot for that for sure 
Um, yeah, and then BMW bought Husqvarna and subsequently sold it, as people may or may not know. Um, but in that era when BMW therefore had a 450 and with Dakar, the rules are now 450 only, uh, I went on that 449 Husqvarna, which was performance-wise, which was you know, much, much better than I'd ever had the chance to ride before. It was actually sort of the first time I'd had a bike that was competitive, really. So, so yeah, I, I, and I've still got that bike as well. And, you know, I still ride that bike. It still runs also. So, yeah, that, that, they're kind of two big highlights for me from, from racing, for sure. Have you still got all the bikes? Not, not quite. The, the race to Dakar bike belonged to Touratech. Um, that was sort of part of the deal that year so that bike's in their offices in germany um and the second year i went i went on a fine british racing machine called a ccm and uh yeah i haven't got that bike sadly um i'd like to but no one seems to know its whereabouts so if anyone out there knows where my 99 ccm 604 dakar bike is let me know (laughs) i'm sure they'll be keeping quiet if they do (laughs) yeah exactly yeah and then, of course, a few a few years ago, was it 2015, you par- partnered up with your son uh, Llewellyn to race a Dakar together? I mean, that must, that's got to be the ultimate father-son adventure, isn't it? But I imagine you must have had quite mixed emotions throughout the whole build-up and also during the rally itself. Do you know, the, yeah, I mean, absolutely, you know, it, it's a father-son dream thing, isn't it, for sure. And, um, you, you know, at the time, I, I think there's been one or two since, but at the time we were the first um, father and son team that had ever done it as far as we could uh, we could ascertain. Apart from, of course, the other legendary BMW uh, Sheck family. So father and daughter <laughs> beat us to the punch there because uh, Herbert Sheck, original, uh, original GS legend, and his daughter Patricia uh, went together a few times. But yeah, I mean, it was an incredible thing to get to do, and as you pointed out, a crazy emotional roller coaster. Um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's a it's a really nuts thing. But uh, I was kind of like happy the first couple of days because there was always a, we we set out at the start and said we're not going to try and ride together because you know from doing it with Charlie and and Plummy back in the day, you know, right, trying to ride together with someone else in that race is madness. Like, you've got to do your own thing and ride at your own level and make your own good choices and bad choices. So the first couple of days, Lel was a little bit quicker than me into the finish, like 10 minutes or 15 minutes sort of over the over the stage. And it was like it was really actually really comforting. <laughs> like, I'm normally quite competitive with him all the time, even now, even though I haven't, <laughs> haven't got the ability to be anymore. But, um, but you know, that comfort of, like, I know where he is because he's somewhere up the road is <laughs> really good. He's in front of you. <laughs> yeah. And then he, uh, I can't remember exactly what order it happened or, or how it happened, but, like, like he had a bad day. <laughs> And I ended up in front of him and it fried my brain like the whole day. I was like, oh, oh, oh. you know, you can't, you can't sort of look backwards. It's impossible. You can't do anything. And then, and then we ended up um, together and then uh, two days in a row, we had a massive crash right in front of me, like proper, proper rally style cartwheel end for end cloud of dust explosion. <laughs> I can't take it anymore. 
But um, yeah, but but in the end, it was obvious, and I'm sure he probably went for all the same stuff as well because you know the second day I ended up in a really bad way. It was uh, 50 degrees, deep sand, whoops all day, and uh, I ended up in you know in the hospital on a drip that night. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, yeah, so I'm sure the the role, you know, the emotions were there on both sides, no question about it. Yeah great memories when you look back and uh, you know hundreds of stories to tell but at the time just yeah so many heart-stopping moments and like you say you know yeah it, one of the best dreams that you can do father and the son so fair, fair play to you fair yeah. play to you and and again because the the real joy was in the the build-up you know in that in that sort of nine months beforehand when we're like oh we've got to go training together we've got to go out cycling we've got to go and ride our motorbikes you know we've got do all this stuff together you know we've got to have a meeting in the evening and talk about this sponsor and you you know like all that stuff is like what what made that uh sort of father-son journey fantastic was the project you know not not more much more than the race and of course you've got that elation of we finished the project at the end of the race but just and, and that's where i don't think it matters whether it's a race or whether it's just like you know going somewhere together as a family at the end of the month or, you know, looking forward to Christmas or going on an adventure ride together. Like it, it's that journey together that, that always makes it for me. And yeah, that, that's sort of, I, I, everyone's different with this. I know there's lots of people who like traveling on their own, but whenever I've done like an adventure trip, I love doing it with either a good mate or a family member to share that, that journey of, not just the trip but all the prep and everything you know that's that's the and i've been fortunate with lel not just dakar but we've done some great adventure rides together as well you know yeah and just going back to the school the program itself has massively expanded isn't it i mean so so many progressive levels now and you've got adventure maintenance i think adventure travel training women only school overseas tours you spoke about schools in other countries tours i mean pretty much just about everything a gs rider could think of or need i I would say now yeah 100 percent. and but you know it's all what it's always i think it's always about like one the camaraderie <laughs> you know we've got a real kind of family feel i think with all our customers you know people we we form you know we end up forming these like kind of friendships and good relationships with people all the time through through what they're doing and what we're doing and um you know the learning journey is part of that for sure and and i think you know we're always really strong on even when we do a a, a ride or a trip like you know our five-day rides in portugal is a great example you know, it's always about continuing to progress and continuing to evolve in your in your riding. Even though it's not formal school, it's always about like we're going to work on this little bit today, and we're going to get this bit better, and we're going to understand this kind of this kind of training. And and for me, the reason for doing that as an adventure motorcyclist, you know, none none of us are um, well. There's there's a small number that come through the school that get inspired to go racing for sure, but for most people, it's much more about that journey of being like more comfortable and more confident on their motorcycle and and like i always like to say you you know the more the more you can be comfortable and competent and confident around your bike the more you can enjoy the journey of where you're going to ride and it's not necessarily about becoming a great off-road rider it's about you know when you're in somewhere in the middle of italy in some little medieval village and you want to go and look at the church at the top of the hill in a narrow cobbled street that you've got the confidence to go up there and look see if you can get there and when there's a fiat 500 in your way 
you, you can stop and turn around and, and deal with the situation and you're enjoying you're enjoying the environment and the countryside and the you know the, the reason you go traveling that you can enjoy that stuff because the riding isn't stressful for you anymore and that's you know that's the reason for me to like keep progressing that stuff because you start to see more of the the world from your motorcycle which is like a massive point for me um so so yeah that's that's kind of the reason for having those sort of follow-on adventures and and you see it like the two-day school works fantastically we know that it's a great model that's been you know copied over and over now it works but nothing works better than like having a couple of days training and then just consolidating it with a a week's riding straight afterwards yeah and and you say you think about you know inspiring confidence in people and getting them to take more than their first steps off road but the next level and, and like you say maybe riding overseas and but do you get a lot of international visitors coming to you as well yeah 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 we do we do yeah yeah which is also you know super super enjoyable and pleasurable um yeah we've got i think there's not a corner of the world we haven't had a customer come from now it's uh yeah it's really fantastic that side of it i think every single school there's there's you know a little number of uh overseas customers on every single school which is again just like super enjoyable it just adds to the whole flavor of uh of the weekend as well when people are here and they're you know they're now they've come here as a customer because they think they want to learn to ride their motorbike better but they actually come here and they, they you know they make new friends they form new relationships they form a new mindset and and that's where that whole journey again begins because they then go away and they message each other on facebook and it turns out that you know they they only live around the corner or they know someone else that's just around the corner and they yeah that that whole thing starts to evolve and that's you know again that's just a great community to be part of it is it's and you know even though it's a massive community it feels like a very small community somehow doesn't it 100 percent. yeah 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 it sure does what i think i mean i hope you agree with this but i think one of the big success stories with these kind of schools is that you're not on your own bike <laughs> in terms of the ability to learn yeah yeah that's sometimes depressing from my side of the fence though isn't it absolutely yeah <laughs> crush damage yeah understand. but it does make a difference doesn't it i mean people people can't have an open mind on their own bikes can they of course and you know we've we've always maintained that right from the start is that we want people to be thinking about the the lessons and the instruction and the information and, and not concerned for damaging their own bike or damaging our bikes you know that's why we've always like with our school we've always maintained that the price is the price and whatever happens to the bike it's like that's not your issue you know that's our issue so you know if if people are relaxed um or as relaxed as you can be when you first start out then you you know there's much better chance of you actually doing well and your confidence building and if you you know if that starts to come well you stop dropping the bike and then then you can go and try stuff on your own bike because you've got to that You've broken that first little uh, fear point, I guess, of scratching your own motorcycle. And like like we're seeing it more and more now, this is something that didn't happen very much in the early years of our school, especially in the UK, where um, people didn't just didn't take their GSs off road. I know it's a little bit different in you know southern Europe, especially in Australia and Canada, but as because they have gravel roads everywhere but here in the uk we don't we have off-road or we have road you know um so 
you know, in the early years of the school, it was just not a thing. But it's happening more and more now where people are getting that confidence where they're like, I've bought this bike. It is what it's for. Um, I know there's a small risk. I'm going to do some scratches or whatever, but I'm comfortable with that and I'm going to do it. I'm going to have a go. And they come and do the school and, you know, definitely increasingly every year we get people come back that are, you know, that are happy to use their bike as it was intended. And, like, that's joyous as well from from our side because you – you know, that's that's part of the story you want to sell, isn't it? Is you, I know they're expensive bikes, but you bought this bike because you bought into this like aspirational thing. So now aspire to it and use use it for what it was designed for. And it looks better with a few battle scars on it, anyway, doesn't it? Yeah, sure does. Yeah. <laughs> and you're never too young or too old to uh, learn more skills, are you? Especially when it comes to off road. Ah, look, you know, I I actually, you know, it's something that I think is amazing that people these days, again, you know, they're happy to start a new sport in their 60s or 70s. And uh, I think we're 84-year-olds about the record at the moment. Um, Wow. First time off-road, you know. Awesome. And uh, with us, and, yeah, it's really fantastic when you see that. And you see people, like, actually, like, really having a go at that age as well. (laughs) And... uh, yeah, it's it's I it blows my mind. It makes me very happy every week. Actually, it's so impressive. So, as you know, um, it's forty years of GS in twenty twenty. Uh, it's been a tough year for everyone, and we haven't been able to make all the celebrations in the way that we wanted to. But I, I have to know what has been your favourite GS of all time. And I, of course, I get a little bit nostalgic for my old race bikes, but I'm not massively nostalgic for. Uh, I I love the fact that bikes keep progressing every year and keep getting better um so you you know at the moment my favorite bike is no question uh, you know is my instructor bike this year's 1250 gs rally with the sports suspension and the thing's incredible and every now and then i jump on a i've got an 1150 in the garage and i jump on that and there's this little small piece of nostalgia and then you hit a bump and you go do you know what (laughs) my current bike is bloody awesome (laughs) and 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 I'm I'm definitely still I maybe I'll change when I get a bit older, but right now I'm definitely still like I want the best bike I can get, and uh, it's pretty looking at those old ones, but I love the new stuff. Like it sometimes is surprising going back and how good those bikes actually were thirty years ago. Like they're better than you think, until like something like happens and you need to put the brakes on in a difficult situation, <laughs> and then you're like, give me a modern bike. <laughs> Yeah, it's a fair point, isn't it? I mean, nostalgia is one thing, but it just shows you how good these latest bikes are, doesn't it? When you think about how you know how you compare them to to what people were riding at the turn of the century, or... and and like I probably said it to you before, but even like from the school's point of view, in the last um, sort of seven or eight years, like it's totally transformed the way we teach the modern bike. You, you know, with the current electronics, with how good abs is and how good traction control is especially the abs side like it's totally changed a lot of things in the way we teach and and how quickly people can progress through their learning journey with a lot less risk you can teach people on downhills and in braking scenarios and stuff like that very very safely whereas going back to the older generation you know when abs first came out and it didn't really work and when we used to always have to have the message that we need the ABS turned off when we go off-road. It's not safe to ride with ABS on, you know, and, and when people made mistakes in their learning curve, 
their confidence dipped a long way because usually the price for a mistake was having to pick the bike up off the ground. And uh, so it took a lot longer to build that confidence and to become a safer rider on your own, you know, to the point where you can turn the safety systems off and still be safe. You know, now when we're going through that early learning curve where you do make mistakes, um, you know, you're a little bit aggressive with the controls and you grab a brake too hard or you grab the throttle too aggressively, um, the price now is the electronics cut in and the bike feels funny. You don't fall over. You know, you don't have that confidence dip of uh, what have I done wrong? I don't know what I've done wrong and I'm having to pick the bike up. That doesn't happen anymore or it happens a lot less. So, so the confidence builds much more quickly and with confidence you learn finesse on the controls and then you've got enough finesse on the controls. You can turn the systems off and you're safe. You know, so I think that that stuff's like really changed motorcycling in a lot of ways. And, you know, it helps to bring more people in because you can come in and you can come in as a novice and get looked after. I mean, I guess the people coming in now don't have to unlearn any skills. I guess it was I guess it's harder for the people who've grown up with the previous technology and, you know, being effectively being frightened of ABS off road. Whereas now, if, if it's all you know is the modern bikes, then you don't have those kind of fears in the same way, do you? Um, I, I, well, I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, no, I, th- I think you can totally reset those, even if you've learned and been through that story of you must turn it off. I, th- I think you can totally reset that because, you know, just a simple example is you do a braking exercise from speed, you can you can totally do it with safety because, yeah, you just come in and pull the brake too hard and the, the lever pulses under your finger. Nothing else happens. Um, so you can almost go the other way and like overstep that mark safely and then go, oh, actually, now I understand how good these brakes are, you know, and, and work your way back. Because you used to teach people how to skid confidently, even with the front wheel locked. But I guess you don't do that anymore, do you? Um, no, we, we, we still do. We still, we, we still do. We do it a little bit differently, for sure. Um, but again, it, it is a confidence building thing to understand. You know, you're, one, you're trying to understand where that line is of when I've pulled the brake too hard. Um, so it's good to know, you know, where that is, especially when you're a road rider and you've sort of been told, you know, don't go, don't risk locking the brake. You probably don't know how hard you can brake because you've never taken it to that line. So we, we still do those exercises, but we definitely do them in a much different way now. It's much more progressive and it's much more focused on understanding the brake and why ABS cuts in and act because, you know, actually if you do a really good job of using the brakes correctly, you, you know, the ABS is there to rescue you when you mess up. So it's still better to have good control of the brakes and good understanding of how the brakes work. Um, you know, there's no question about that, but because the ABS works so well, it gives us much more opportunity to explore that, that line. Cause if we overstep that line, we don't, again, we're not punished with a crash effectively you know we're punished with a nice little warning system that says okay i could do better i can still do this better and you can kind of progress and much more quickly and much more safely yeah even with all the technology then you you never stop learning do you so if i were to say to you why should every rider not just not just every gs rider but every rider get some off-road training one one is confidence you know yeah um but, you know, your core bike control, you can learn a lot of things very safely in an off-road environment or comparatively safely in an off-road environment about bike handling and bike control. You know, 
one, we're not worried about someone running us over. Of course, you can find a bit of tarmac, a private bit of tarmac to do those things on. But things like that, you know, things like learning some feel for the front brake or the rear brake or the control of when is the wheel going to slip if I accelerate too hard and how far is it going to slip, you know, we can evolve those sensations much more easily when the surface is actually less grippy. As soon as you go near the edge of those environments on tarmac it's a, it's a very hard line isn't it it doesn't it, there's no progression to that feeling it's like i've got grip i've got grip i haven't whereas as soon as we're off-road we can sort of start to evolve that sensation and that feeling around that gray line now of where there's grip and not grip and we can we can explore that feeling and we can be happy with the bike moving around a little bit and we can get relaxed with those things you can't learn an emergency stop when a car pulls out in front of you, you have to learn those things over a period of time in a safe environment. So when the car does pull out, you are able to do an emergency stop. And the same thing applies to your wheels slipping on some wet tarmac. You know, you can't learn in the moment the first time a wheel slides out to be relaxed. But if you're relaxed when a wheel slides out a little bit and then it happens to you on the road, your reaction will remain relaxed because you've felt that sensation before. You've got to always evolve those new skills in like a low stress environment. You know, it's why we teach a lot of things, even on the, you know, the the flat gravel car park before we put them into a technical off road environment. Because if heart rate's low and you're calm, you can learn. For all of us with any skill, as soon as you're like near your maximum heart rate and you're nervous and stressed, you can't and learn tense. something new. Yeah, because you just tense up even more. So you've got to always put those skill sets and those, yeah, you've got to put those skill sets in in a place where you can keep calm and and keep your heart rate low, and then you can learn them. And once you once you've ingrained that new habit, that new that new core skill, when it then happens to you in a stressed environment, your natural reaction becomes the correct one because you've formed you've formed that new synapse. Never stop learning and practice, 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 and then keep on practicing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when you're not teaching and when you're not racing, um, when you just want to ride for pleasure, where, where's your favorite place? <laughs> Wherever I can ride <laughs> at the time, yeah. I mean, obviously this year we've spent a lot of time in our local trails just near to here. Um, but and we're super blessed in all honesty we're you know we live in a beautiful part of the world and we have got fantastic trails right on our doorstep um, but yeah I mean I'm just still the same I like to ride where I can when I can and um, yeah with some friends and that that's the that's the main thing that makes it really somewhere somewhere stunningly beautiful and with a with a friend and then I'm in a happy place yeah roll on 2021 and uh, some good news for the world and some freedom to move around again for sure so where can people find out more about the school site offroadskills.com quite easy that's an easy one to remember superb well listen thanks for coming on the podcast and chatting with us today keep up your good work and keep inspiring all of us to ride more and ride better cheers mate nice one thanks andy cheers si always a pleasure to talk to you mate about the old days and the present days of course I hope things soon improve for you and all the instructors teaching us the vital riding skills we need in all the certified training schools around the world. Let's hope 2021 is the year we can all put down some serious miles on our 1250s, 1200s, 850s, 750s or whatever GSs we're lucky enough to own. Stay safe and take care out there. Bye for now.